What's up, everyone? Thank you for joining us on another episode of Off the Dome Radio. We have a really awesome interview with Eric, owner of Ash Blades. So he makes uh, specialty knives. He's an artisan. Everything is handcrafted. He does every piece of it himself. And he is in the greater Indianapolis area. So he is, he is a local guy. We want to support him. So show some love there. And we found him by way of our interview with Ben Canary from Herculean, co-founder of Herculean. If you missed that one, please go check that out as well. We also have a discount code put in off the dome at checkout on Herculean's site. It's a meal prep service, saves you 20%. Uh, and Tim really likes his meals. He's, he's getting his fill on uh, on the Herculean meals. He had some- I got 35. Turkey, he got 35 meals. He had turkey chili. He's had the lean ground turkey with veggies. Yeah, it's, it's happening. So we discuss, uh, we start with Eric's background. He started in, uh, kind of a biology background, doing more science. He was in a, in a lab for 10 years and then realized he was kind of feeling stuff that wasn't really his his strength or what he was being fulfilled with. And so that kind of drove him to learn a skill of sharpening knives. And that's really how it all started. From there, he learned how to be a craftsman and really honed in on the art of making specialty knives. And so it, it was a fire discussion because he was just very passionate about what he does and you can hear it and it just it kind of brought a smile to my face the whole interview just i loved how much he loved what he does and that's the goal so uh yeah tim tim did a great job setting this interview up it was an awesome discussion i know you guys are going to like it tim what do you think about eric yeah i eric brought such a contagious energy to this interview that just and in this interview, there's a lot of good lessons that you can take from it and the fact that he he was in kind of a job that he wasn't utilizing all of his skills like optimally for. So he kind of describes the process of how he was able to transition from that into something that was at first a hobby, then became like a heightened passion, and then he made money off of it and did it the right way. Like he does, he, it's more than just making a profit, it's creating relationships. It's pouring your passion into something, it's creating something uh, like meaningful with your own hands that people are gonna enjoy in their own kitchen, using kitchen knives, stuff like that. So if you've ever wondered like what it, what it looks like to like create a knife and like forge a knife, like you're gonna learn all that in this interview. And it's, it's, such, a, it's such an awesome conversation because you can just tell Eric, coming from the biology background, he knows how to do the rate the research and find the information he, he needs to learn like and he does that in a way where he's become an, an expert at creating knives and he he shares a lot of his process on, on how he was able to build that business um and he and the thing about it is like he defines knives and like the process into such a broader concept that's very easy to understand like um he he just explains like the combination of a knife like the functionality behind a knife and then the art behind a knife. So a lot of cool things that he gets into. Um, I know you guys are going to get a lot of value from this episode. If you want to learn more about him, uh, you can go to his website at ashblades.com. So that's A-S-H and then B-L-A-E-D-S.com. So he's got the A and the E switched um, in, in his, for his business name there. Um, so without further ado, episode 129, Eric from Ash Blades. Eric, not gonna lie, I, I watched your your video on on your website on your homepage, and it fired me up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, excellent, excellent. Thanks, man. They uh, 
12 stars did an awesome job with that. Okay. Yeah, it was well done. Good music. It was intense. I liked it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. So, yeah, I, that, that, was, that was a really fun video. That was really cool of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Am I was... completely like, whitewashed from the light, or is that just my video looks weird? Uh, a little uh, bit. When we, uh, so okay. just to give you an idea of like how this will work. So we'll, we'll do this interview. This isn't live or anything right now. So once the interview is okay. over, Colin and I will record like a, like a two to three minute. Oh, by the way, I'm Tim. And that's who both of us are. So we, we went to, we went to school together. Uh, he's one year cool. old and, and uh, we've been doing this podcast since what? October. Uh, it's about a year and a half right now. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, almost two years. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's it's cool getting to talk to like a bunch of interesting people. And I was on your website prior, and and I was like, man, my knives suck. Like I have shit knives at home. Well, uh, I mean, I, I talk to people who say that all the time, and. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, just keep them sharp and, and if it gets to the point where it's important enough to you to get better ones, then, you know. Yeah. Now, do you then, offer uh, like, any sort of like cutting classes, anything like that? Uh, do you start to do any classes with those? I, yeah, I have done some. I've done, um, uh, I've done a handful, normally either with restaurants or uh, I did a basic, a basic knife skills class up at um, the Carmel Market District, and then I've been talking with um, Jolene from the Fisher's Test Kitchen to go and do some uh, some some ba- again some kind of basic cutting skills class. Uh, talk about knife design. Talk about how to pick out a knife if you're going to do a get a custom yourself. Uh, talk about how to, you know, knife care, all those kinds of things. So I've done, I've done sharpening classes around the, around Indy as well. Um, so just kind of a, you know, a mix of things. Like yeah, a couple of times a year, I'd probably get out and do classes. Cool. Yeah, that's one thing I've been, I've been thinking about is, because that's yeah. probably the slowest part of my game is chopping stuff. And it's like, it takes me forever. I'm like, I need to get in the class. Yeah, so I – I'd love, uh, yeah, if you guys ever did a yeah. class soon this year, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, I mean, ultimately, uh, having a sharp knife and uh, gaining confidence, knowing your way around the the produce or whatever it is that you're cutting makes all the difference in the world. A yeah. good knife and a little bit of knowledge and, and that, you know, you'll, you'll cut off uh, a, a lot of prep time, a lot of prep time. Yeah, yeah I believe that. Um, so I guess for our listeners, maybe, uh, let's kind of start off how you, how you got into making knives and, and what kind of led you there. I saw that you were, uh, majored in like biology too. So I'm interested in the whole progression of, of how you got to yeah. where, where you're at. So, yeah, uh, I, 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 it's a long story or at least I tell it as a long story. So I, I'll try and keep it brief. It's all good. We got I time. Did know. Good. All right, fair enough, fair enough. So I did go to university. I went to IU Bloomington uh, for biology. I loved molecular and evolutionary biology. And um, when I got out of there, I, I really wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do with that. I didn't have like an internship right out of the, out of the gate. Uh, but I found a, a great company to basically do lab work where we were testing uh, for pharmaceuticals. 
to try and test, make sure they're safe, make sure that you're testing for efficacy. Um, and, uh, and, and I did that really for probably six years or something. Uh, I did you know, lab testing and uh, ran these you know, big auto analyzers and ran through thousands of samples a day and um, got to where I, I got to kind of run clusters of them and maintain them. And um, I got to I do things that were really interesting um, that really kind of excited me that, that, that kept me moving. But, um, but in a lab, uh, or at least in that lab, there's kind of a limit to how much professional growth you really have, you know, in, in any corporate environment, this is a big corporation. Um, there, there's only so many spots uh, for kind of like a management level or even just, just growth in general. If you're, if you insist on staying in a lab, there are things you can do. There are places you can go, but maybe there's some limit. And, um, you know, occasionally, well, of course, when people find uh, a spot in, a, in kind of a mid-tier, they'll stay there for decades if they can. And that means there's really no openings for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so at some point, uh, I think, again, maybe about five years in, I kind of transitioned into more of like a project management role where um, I, I kind of broadened my understanding of the business as a whole, but my science went down to about zero other than just my interaction with the customers and what kind of science they needed. I wasn't doing it anymore. I was just kind of understanding it and breaking it down into essentially a deliverable business model. Um, and, uh, and then eventually I got into even more kind of client centric roles. Uh, and so, I don't know, after about 10 years of that, it got to the point where I, I just kind of, like I worked with great people, it was a good company. I just wasn't really happy doing what I was doing, sitting in like sitting at an at a at a computer, uh, in, in, in a cubicle, and just like looking at spreadsheets and just like arguing with salespeople and science people, and, and like it just got to the point where like I I I I couldn't uh, I shouldn't I didn't feel connected to my work anymore. Um, and, and, and through that 10 years, um, I met my wife at the same company. We got married. We had some kids. And um, the, the, the pressures to change uh, just felt more and more and more serious. Uh, and so I, I, I had this idea, like, may, maybe, maybe I just need a creative outlet. Maybe there's something I need to do with what little bit of time I had, what little bit of time I had outside of my 40 to 50 hour office job and having little kids, um, you know, maybe I needed something creative to do. And I had learned, uh, gosh, I've been sharpening knives for like about 10 years. Uh, and I learned initially how to sharpen because I just want to know how to keep my own knives in good shape because I love to cook. Uh, I like camping and, you know, hunting and fishing with my family growing up. A good sharp knife was just something you had to have. And so I spent a lot of time developing that as a skill just for myself, just to have um, a sharp knife around when I wanted to cook, when I wanted to, you know, go camping, whatever that was. Um, And so this idea sort of kind of percolating in my head, like maybe I can make one of these things. I've I've sharpened enough of them over, you know, seven or eight years or whatever, uh, that maybe I can just make one. And uh, that was kind of the initial start. It was really just, um, that I was kind of struggling to stay satisfied in a, in an office environment. 
um, you know, which, which a lot of people are, are great in. You know, my, my, my wife is phenomenal in both a lab and office environment. She has just a great, a perfect temperament for it. Uh, and, and I was not. Uh, I, I just, it just like, it stressed me out to just be sitting in a cubicle all day long, like just reading over documents. And yeah, I, I, I don't know, I, you know, it was just one of those things that eventually, you know, I, I started as a hobby and my, my, eventually my wife was like, well, listen, childcare is pretty, pretty extraordinarily expensive. So why don't you just try to do this instead? You know, just, if you love this, if this is something, you know, I made a bunch of knives and they sucked. They actually sucked, but I loved it. And I was like, it doesn't matter that these ones suck. Of course, the first ones are going to suck, but I'm going to get better and I want to do this. Um, and she was like, then just do it. Like, just, just do it. Just, you know, quit, stay home with the baby and you can work nights and weekends and we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out how, how to, how to move forward with you in a place where you're doing something that you're happy with. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you guys, uh, how much you guys talk about this. I don't want to do divert too far from it, but it is a part of my story. Um, that, uh, it, tur it turns out that I was diagnosed as a kid with ADD and my parents don't really talk to me about it. Um, which is okay. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge them that they had their reasons for not really divulging that to me, but I certainly noticed throughout my life that there seemed to be some struggles that I was having, like focusing and just staying on task for certain things. And I was just like, why isn't my brain doing what everyone else's brain is doing? But then there were other things where I could laser focus and just like knock it out of the park easy. It was nothing for me to focus on other things and just crush that. And then there was this other stuff that it was like the skills between the two of these things are the exact same. So why isn't, why is my brain, you know, just zeroing in on this one set of things and then completely it's like pulling teeth to get myself to do something else. Mm -hmm. And, um, it really wasn't until college when I was struggling with, um, just the craziest course load where I had these two, two or three classes that I absolutely loved these science classes that I absolutely loved. And I had no problem pouring in time to stay on top of these classes. But then I had these other classes that I thought were like going to give me kind of a break from my hardcore you know, genetics, molecular biology, uh, and, uh, chemistry courses. And it turned out they were totally insane. The one was a, um, it was, it was heroes in Russian history. So I thought, hey, this could be really cool. Now, what it turned out was you had 13 classical Russian literature books to read in one semester. Oof. So you were reading like, yeah, you're reading War and Peace in seven days. Jeez. You're reading, yeah, it was just, it was one after another. And it was like, what is this? And why can I spend all day reading this one course material and just devouring it? And then I can't sit down and read this book. And I, um, yeah, I have, I have a wonderful relationship with my parents. My parents are wonderful people. Um, and so I talked to them about it and they're like, well, there is kind of a reason. And here it is. Uh, and your brain just works differently. Uh, and so, you, you, you know, you just have to learn how to deal with that. Uh, and, um, but in a way, not, once I was kind of a little older and I was armed with that understanding that these are my struggles, that I can really kind of like try and focus in on what those struggles are and like try and reinforce those things 
so that, that there weren't so, you know, so much weaknesses, but then really highlight my strengths, those things that I was good at focusing on, make sure I nailed those. Well, in this office environment, you know, 15 years later, I found myself in this place where very few of my strengths were things that I got to use. And it was just weakness all day long. You know, it was just like organizing spreadsheets and, you know, reading through, it wasn't reading through science material anymore. It was reading through legalese contract material to try and make sure that the science was, was, was instead reflected into a legal document that broke down exactly what the sales order was meant to, you know, and so again, some people are just, are great at this. It's, 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 it's no mental hurdle for them. But for me, it was hard. It was really hard to focus on that kind of stuff. And as I said, I didn't do my, you know, my job well. I, I did, but I wasn't happy with it. It stressed me out to like, to try and make my brain just bore down into that thing that the science was so easy. It was, it was, it was obvious. It was like, yeah, I understand this. I know how to do this. I can run with this. And then, you know, just through the desire of progressing in a career and having something else, I ended up putting myself in a situation. Uh, it was nobody else's fault. I just, I put myself in a situation pr professionally where um, I was not working with my strengths. You know, I was working from, from weaknesses and um and it was kind of right around that time where my wife was like then then do something that you love you know do do, do that instead great so that's that's kind of it <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great Eric. that that takes a a very high level of self-awareness to realize that about yourself realize that about your situation and and like make life changes and move you in a direction where you're doing something you're passionate about. Like you took that focus that you had, that that work ethic, and you poured it into something that uh, was a hobby, but then you transformed it into a passion and then eventually a business. So I guess I want to ask you, like, can you describe that process of like forming that business and maybe just give like an explanation of what your business is about, uh, what it provides and, uh, for the listeners as well? Yeah, so, um, the, the, yeah, the, the, the hobby originally was just, again, it was kind of a creative outlet. It's like, I'm already doing sharpening, so that's a skill. It's a learned skill that I can apply to something useful, which felt good, but it wasn't, still wasn't really like a creative outlet. I wasn't making anything at the end of every day uh, at my office job. I was just sort of walking away with whatever left undone because you'd never do it all, right? You could never answer all the emails. You could never respond to every phone call. You could never complete every document. So every day I was walking away with this feeling like, what did I do today? You know, I got a shitload of stuff done. And I turn around and it's like, did I get anything done though? Really? Like really get anything done? I don't know. It doesn't feel quite like I did. So I had this feeling like I want to make something tangible. And, and even if it sucks, at least I can look at it and say, yeah, I made that thing. Like, I made that. That's, that's cool. I feel good about that. So originally it was just that. It was just this kind of like, I don't know, passion project. It was just, it was just for me. And, 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 and admittedly, it was kind of, kind of selfish, I guess. Uh, it was me just trying to find something in the end, just find something that I maybe could transition from. I mean, ultimately, again, with the help of my wife, I made that transition. But I, I always in the back of my head kind of had that hope that maybe I'll find that thing that I can do. Like, 
I don't know, maybe I was born to be like a field biologist and I never figured it out, right? I was going to be the not so zany Steve Irwin and I just never quite nailed that down. So I was looking for like, what can I do that gives me this, this sense of fulfillment at the end of every day? Um, and sharpening was actually the, the kind of the, the, the segue into it because that was, as it turned out, a very marketable skill set that just evidently no one really had in the area. I kept hearing from more and more people. I sharpened all my family's knives just because, right? I was just like, oh, well, yeah, you guys need your kitchen knives sharpened just like I do, so I'll just do that. But then I started hearing more from friends who were like, whoa, okay, yeah, I've had this set of knives for like 10 years. I don't think they've ever been sharpened. And I was like, oh, weird. Yeah, I could do that. That's easy enough. I've been doing this, you know? And then um, it, I think it was, I can't remember if I was just talking to my wife about it, but um, the idea popped up in my head that like maybe I could, uh, maybe I could go to a local farmer's market and sharpen knives there because everyone's going to go there. They're going to pick out all this really nice produce and then they're going to go home to their 10 year old, you know, big box store knives and uh, they're going to struggle <laughs> and it's going to feel crappy. You know, they know that they have just beautiful produce and they're going to go home and they're going to beat the hell out of it with a dull knife and that's going to feel unsatisfying. So maybe I can join a farmer's market and provide this as a service. I can just sharpen it and it's just, cash, just a little cash on the side, you know, uh, and, and it would give me something to feel fulfilled about. Like I made somebody's day, you know, somebody walks away happy. I know their knives are sharp. They're great shape. And in the meantime, while I'm making some knives, I'll put them out there. We'll just see what people think. Maybe somebody will be interested. Uh, so the, and, and, and at the time I had a friend who, uh, he wasn't exactly in the same situation. I think he was pretty satisfied with his job, but he had a series of other things that he liked to do to just keep himself busy, I guess, when he wasn't in, in, in his, in his, in his, uh, in his career, his office job. And um, he was a, a musician, and he was just like, dude, that sounds awesome. Let, let me try that with you. And I was like, all right, man, we'll figure it out. We'll figure out how to make a knife. This, this will be cool. Uh, so I, I joined the, the farmer's market. The very first day, I had all my, you know, my stones and everything set up, and I had one knife that I had made for my mother-in-law in a box. Um, and I, I set that on, a, on the table, and the very first customer who walked up, he was like, Whoa, you sharpen knives? I was like, yeah, I do. He's like, I'll be right back. Turns around, <laughs> walks away. Comes back a half an hour later with a, a brown lunch, like or a brown uh, grocery sack, just full of knives, just packed full of knives. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome, right? First customer immediately saw the value in what I'm doing, turned around, brought me his entire drawer, right? Um, so while I'm sharpening those, I mean, I, within like an hour, another customer comes by and he was like, oh, so you sharpen knives? Like, yeah, yeah, okay. I have some knives, but also, did you make this knife? I was like, yeah, I did. He's like, can I buy this knife? I was like, no, no, but, but I'll make you one yeah. if you're interested. I, I, I can make you one. This one is a gift for someone. And I just wanted to display it because I happened to, to have made it. 
And by then, I'd made a bunch of prototypes. And again, they're ugly. They suck. They're all over my shop as just shop knives. But I knew, I mean, I knew the first handful of them were going to be terrible. I was never going to sell them. But this is the first one I made that it was like, you know, my, my mother-in-law was like, I, I want to be your first customer. I want to buy a knife from you. I'll be the first person to buy one. And I was like, all right, yeah. I mean, your family, I'll, I'll, if that's true, I'll do all this. So then immediately somebody else was like, hey, can I buy this too? Yeah, so that, yeah, all right, here we go. So that guy comes back later. He basically like lawnmower blades. He's he a super awesome guy. This is the Greenfield far, Farmer's Market. Um, his name was Skip, and he uh, he passed away from cancer uh, a little right around a year ago. But he was always one of my best customers. He was such a nice guy. He was my very first customer, and every year Skip was out there looking for me. And then my first non-family customer was Chris Baggett from Tyner Pond Farm. And he was like, I want to order a knife for one of my chefs. And I was just like, yes, this is amazing. Okay, let's do this. Uh, and so I just came back every weekend and, you know, just kind of got a slow roll going in, in Greenfield where I lived at the time. And so I basically did that for about a year. Maybe, yeah, a year, about a year. And by then, that was when, uh, you know, it was, I was getting, I was starting to get enough orders where I was like, crap, I don't, I don't actually have enough time to do all this stuff. This is getting, um, this is getting kind of difficult. And my business partner at the time was feeling that same strain. He was just like, I don't have enough time to like focus on this, this new skill set because, um, I want to be totally, totally honest with you. This was, other than the sharpening, this was a skill set I absolutely did not have. Maybe there are people who can, who can pick this up like that, but I was not one of those people. It took me a lot of dedicated research, reading, you know, library books, and just tons of effort to make a whole bunch of crap to, to start with. But I loved it. I loved every one of them. And so every time I made one, I wanted to make another one, and I wanted to make it better. Um, and again, you know, after maybe a year of that, of just just really working on that hobby and and mostly just sharpening as as my as the professional thing that I did that I offered people it, it kind of got to that point where it's like wow this is feeling a little bit more like a business um, and it was right around that time that my business partner said hey you know this is kind of my third gig and I don't have I'm starting to run out of time with my family so I I, I got to bow out and um, and then you know again my, kind of my wife was thinking. Why don't you, why don't you consider just doing this now? You're getting busy enough where you're, you're, you're searching for hours in the day, uh, to do this thing that you clearly love. I was just always looking at the shop door, you know, like, when can I get in there? Not to say I was, wasn't focused on my family, but my family is, is always my number one thing. Um, but whenever I, we had that little bit of free time, a kid was going down for a nap. Ooh, that gets me an hour. Let me get in there, you know? Uh, Saturday morning, nobody is else is up. Let me get in there. When they come out, when they're ready for breakfast, and the kids are like, "Daddy, you know, I, 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 I drop what I'm doing." But like, I was looking for every single moment to sneak in there and make another shitty knife. Uh, <laughs> I loved it, you know. I loved it. Uh, and so, so yeah. I mean, so I guess that's kind of it was. It was really just uh, sharpening was 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 kind of the the the, the start. It was the that was the flywheel that got me moving. 
because everyone seemed to realize that as a skill set that was worth paying for. So in fact, that first time, that very first customer, Skip, when he came back, he came back with this, and I was like, Skip, you're not going to be able to put this in the same grocery bag, man. You have to get a towel or something. And he was like, oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> Puts him in there, picks up the bag, and every knife just slides right oh, through the bag, man. Yeah, just shoop. Yeah, just slip right through there. You know, he was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> he did. He went out, got a kitchen towel, a bath towel, and rolled them all up in a big wad. And he was like, "I'm coming back." Yeah. And yeah, and it was awesome. It was. It was just. That was like. Uh, that was just the most satisfied I had felt in a really long time with myself. You know. That I was the most, it was, and my, my, my wife worked the first one with me and she could see it. She saw it in my face and I was just like, wow, like I nailed that. That feels so good. I can't, I can't, I, you know, I can't believe how, how simple that really ended up being. I mean, there's a lot of complexity to it, but just offering a service that no one else offered in a place where no one thought to look for it. And suddenly, you know, there it was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was it. I got hooked, man. I just those first two customers were like, "Yo, <laughs> I need these things in my life," and I was like, "Man, me too. I need these things in my life." Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, I I love your story and, and the fact that well, one, you got some free product testing too. You know, it went right through the bag. It's like, well, it works. Like, yeah, hopefully, hopefully everyone else saw them go right through the same bag where it's like, those are some sharp knives. Um, but, but I really enjoy how, you know, cause a lot of people are like, how do I get started doing, you know, I don't like my, my day job or whatever it may be, or it's not really my thing. And I don't have time. Like you were a family man, you had a full-time gig and you still found the time to, to just sharpen knives and just start doing research and, and learning what you really were interested in. And so I, I like how it's like you have the time. Everyone has the time, right? It, it's priority driven. It, it's what are you putting towards that time? Um, and I would, I would like to go back a little bit to, you mentioned your, your lack of focus with stuff that you weren't really super crazy about with ADD. And I'm curious, did you ever have that issue when it came to learning how to sharpen knives, learning how to make a knife, like when you were actually doing the craft, uh, did that really hinder you as much as, as the other things um, that you noticed? Like, did you have as much of a, a focus problem once you started to really hone in like, hey, this is my shit. Like, th this is what I'm here to do. Uh, there is a baseline issue with focus. Um, with a lot of people whose brains work like mine do where, you know, your brain is just, uh, uh, going in different directions all the time. Uh, but, but again, it's something that I was really interested in. And so it's easier for me to sort of refocus on that goal, uh, or on that, or on that, that feeling or the sound or whatever that is that my brain really likes about that thing. Uh, it is easier for me to refocus on that. And uh, sure, there are, there are things about it that are stressful um, that sometimes are hard for me to like really force myself to do because they're stressful, but they're really important. And and the overall thing still means so much to me that I that I I, I, I managed to get myself through it. Um, even even on my off days, you know, I managed to kind of get myself through it. But but certainly there are some things that I recognize, like if I'm really tired, which is where my focus really starts to slip, you know, now is maybe not a time to run a, a 36 grit belt at like 3000 surface feet per minute and, you know, rip my fingers off. Probably if I'm not focused, I need to find something else to do 
where I can where I can re redial in my focus um, <clears throat> or something that's just less likely to hurt me. Uh, so there's kind of a daily battle with that. And you know, I'll admit uh, there was a time when I was in project management when I, I, I went to the doctor for it because I was I, again I wasn't failing at my job, but I personally felt so stressed out by it. Uh, that every day was just this battle with myself to kind of get through this thing that everyone else around me was just kind of like getting through. It was a stressful job no matter what. The project management where I worked is hard. It's really hard. Um, but it was just especially hard for me for whatever reason. Again, it was just something my brain didn't focus that well on. So I did go to my primary care doctor and I said, okay, well, you know, we can try you on a low-dose medication to try and see if that helps. And uh, for probably maybe four to six months, I tried that, and at first it did help. It helped a lot. It helped me focus uh, because, it, like, really, my brain just uh, the, um, uh, the the impulse that that comes with with that with that kind of scattering of my focus, it just kind of like dropped out. And then it was like I could focus on something for hours at a time and not really realize that I was doing it. It was, it was like almost autopilot. But what I found was that it completely flattened me out emotionally. And it almost wiped out my appetite. And um, after about six months, when some of the stress started to return, what I noticed was all of the happy things that I liked about myself were pretty much gone, like just dead. And all I had was frustration and focus. And that was like, this sucks. I don't want to just be really good at my job and hate it, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's not healthy. That's, that's, that's not the way to go either. So I, I ended up having to just kind of wean myself off the medication and go back to the struggles. And, you know, I mean, you know, if, if the, the mental health professionals can help people through it in all kinds of different ways, but ultimately this, this ended up being the healthiest way for me was to change, was to make, was to alter that thing in my life that was causing me so much stress because I didn't want to be like emotionally flat bad to my, to my kids. I didn't want to be the, <laughs> the husband that could stay up until midnight washing dishes and get up at five in the morning with the baby and just be flat. Like that's not a, that's not the husband that my wife you know, got on board with like, yeah, that's neat that I'm getting all the chores done, but you know, but I I was just, you know, I just found myself to be really emotionally, uh, kind of dead. Uh, so I mean, so this was, yeah, this was kind of that, that change ultimately where it's like, uh, I I still struggle with lots of things that come easy to other people don't come easy to me. Uh, but, but this, this thing, and I still have to work on it. Like it doesn't, again, it doesn't come easy to me. Like forging, I never forged anything in my life. I had only ever swung a hammer a half a dozen times to like nail a couple of boards together. You know, I, I, I don't know how to like, I never knew how to fix electronic machinery when it broke down. I didn't know how to do any of that. But it, it, it was important enough to me um, to kind of battle through those little deviations in focus to make sure that I could do this thing that I loved because it does mean a lot to me to be able to do this. So, um, so it, it, 
sharpening in particular, since you mentioned it, is very zen-like for me. Like I can, um, the, the rhythmic motion, this, uh, some of the stones I pick uh, ultimately because I like the sound. I mean, I do it in a process, but some I prefer over others because they feel and they sound really nice. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just like a weird thing that, that, that it, just, it just feels soothing to me to do. It's a process that feels really soothing to me. And so even now, um, a, a couple of days a month, well, not right now because of our current situation, but up until basically February or March, a couple of days a month, I would go out and sharpen around the city professionally for restaurants, especially restaurants that have my knives because I always sharpen those for free anytime they need it. Uh, but then while I'm there, they always have, have me sharpen all their other knives. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, not only does it help me maintain the relationships with those people who are my, my customers, but also uh, it's just something I love to do. I love to get out there and, you know, sharpen on site and, you know, kind of take care of the, the, the folks that are in the kitchens, doing hard work, feeding our, our community. Uh, it just feels good to kind of get out there with them and take care of their, uh, yeah, take care of their knives. Yeah, that's that just shows that you're. I mean, you're not just selling a knife to someone and try, trying to like make a profit. Like you're investing into your relationship with them. It's awesome that you do that. Hopefully, hopefully yeah, I, yeah, I imagine I can one day. I, I try to avoid it being feeling purely transactional. I, I want, um, I want, uh, you know, every one of those tools I have a connection to because I picked out those materials. I worked through those materials. I, I mean, I did everything with, you know, with my machinery, with my hands, um, down to the last little detail. And, uh, and, and every one of those means something to me. It means something to my family. Uh, and so, you know, I, I offer a, um, a lifetime warranty on everything I make. I'll, I'll sharpen it for free anytime that somebody needs it. I want people to use them. I want people to love them because I love it. Um, because I use mine, you know, and I, I, I want people to have that same, uh, I guess, um, appreciation isn't really the word I'm looking for, but we'll go with that appreciation for it. I want them to feel like they can, they can invest in this thing and it feels like an investment where it's going to, I'm going to help them take care of it over the course of, you know, me being able to do this and them having the knife in their position. Yeah. And I, I love what you said on your video. Uh, I think you mentioned talking about how like artisanry and knives. It's it's a combination of like functionality and it's a, with art too. So like, do you want to just like elaborate a little bit on that about the like what what is that connection like to you from like a functionality standpoint and an art standpoint? Yeah. So um, so artisanry really is just kind of. Uh, um, like high skilled labor in, in, in its most basic form. But uh, the way I kind of look at it is I, I make tools that I want people to use. Uh, ultimately a knife is a tool. And in fact, it's a tool that we've been making for what, two and a half or 2.8 million years as hominid. Homo sapiens even come up with it. Some other hominid did. Uh, we've been using these things forever. Um, and it's a really simple tool it does a really specific job and, uh, uh, and, and it has evolved over the life of, uh, of humanity as we, you know, better our technology, as we gain new materials, as we find new ways to do things, there are some changes that come with it, but ultimately the knife as a, as a wedge 
is kind of the same thing it's always been. Um, and so one of the things about you know, everybody talks about in design form follows function, right? Well, um, the function of a knife has changed very little over those 2.8 million years. It's doing the same thing for the most part that it's been doing forever. Um, and there are little things, there's a little envelope in there of design that, that can make sure and, and, and follow the functional need of that tool. And then from there, it's basically materials and process. So um, it, the aesthetics, there, there, there's a certain kind of malleability in the aesthetics where, you know, you can choose one material, you know, one, one handle material over another for any particular reason, but as long as it meets certain conditions, it, it, there's all kinds of different things that you can do with that material. Uh, and same thing with, you know, the, the, the steel choice, as long as it's meeting the, the needed conditions of the, the functional requirement of that tool, there's a lot of artistry that you can put into that. And that's where each artisan can kind of emerge as their, as their own. Uh, kind of, you know, you kind of get to the point where people maybe see your work and say, oh, I, that, that looks like so-and-so's work. Uh, and that's, you know, that, 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 that comes from our own experiences, from our own preferences, from the things that we've learned, that we've experienced throughout life, that kind of guides our, our, our artistic path as we take it. Um, but in the end, so you have a function, you have a need for that tool, something that you need it to do. And then that essentially drives the, the kind of the three elements of, of that artisanry. And that is, again, the design, the materials, and the process. And each one of those pieces uh, informs the other two. And then any change in one will, will necessitate a change in the other. How much they change, you know, how much one alters the other depends on the function, depends on uh, exactly what you're trying to do with that tool. And that's all really vague, but that's kind of a high-level take on it that that there's a lot of room for individual interpretation that as long to me as long as you follow those initial three components to designing a functional tool then artisanry kind of comes in as the, art, uh, the artistic piece that, that, that follows within that because a robot can make a functional knife it's not um, it's not just purely about function. An artisan can make a more functional knife for certain, but they can also make a more beautiful knife. Um, and that's where that gets really comes in, right? So you kind of talk about um, the intrinsic value of something being handmade, of something being artisan made. And artisan is kind of a buzzword, right? People use artisan for stuff that clearly is not artisan. It's not handmade with skilled labor. It's, you know, it's, it's factory plopped into a bag or whatever, and they call it artisan anyway. So right. it's, a, it's a little bit of a buzzword, but when it's applied to something like this or you know, pottery um, or bookbinding or any number of things that, that still are done uh, carpentry by people's hands, there is a reflection in the, in the, in the, in the artist who made it. And, and, and I think that's where a lot of that intrinsic value comes from beyond just the fact that of those three things, design, material, and process, you have a lot more control over those three things when you're an artisan than you do when you're 
when you're a factory, when you're a robot. Um, then there's, there's, a, there's a serious limit to what you can do with those three things. Yeah. That's very well explained. For someone who doesn't really know much about knives, that, that makes perfect sense and um, how you can kind of control some of the variables about it and what must remain consistent throughout time. I wanted to ask, are there, are there any like different types of materials or steels that like you prefer working with or any that you've adapted into in your own style just because you like them more or anything like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, ultimately, again, this all, um, all of the, the, the material choices are driven a lot by those, those other components, right? The design and the process. Um, one of the most important things I think about artisanry, and especially if you're trying to run a business where you're actually exchanging you know, money or whatever for the thing that you're doing, I think it's really important to realize that at every little decision point, there's a compromise that's going to be made. Whether you realize that compromise is made or not, in large part determines how successful and um, maybe aesthetically pleasing those two things, how, how, how much those are going to tie together and into making a functional tool. And it ultimately may decide how functional your tool actually is. If you don't realize that you're making a compromise and you just make it and then you make the next compromise without realizing it and the next one without realizing it, you know, you, you kind of travel down this path where you're not really making very many decisions anymore, where you're just kind of going with what you have and that's okay when you first start out you have to kind of go with what you have what 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 steel is even affordable to you okay now can can you heat treat it reasonably you know so that there's another decision point there um do you have the materials to actually grind a good bevel without you know without making x y and z mistake so, so to, to a certain degree, especially when you're first starting out, a lot of these decisions are kind of made for you because you're, you're, there's only so much at your fingertips. Unless you have a, a fully up and running shop from some family member that you can walk into, then you've got everything else at your fingertips. That's fine. But just assuming you don't, uh, then, then you're going to be making some decisions, design, material, and process decisions that are going to have compromises built into them. Uh, so when I go to choose a material, uh, I want to choose that material based on a compromise that I'm aware of. Uh, so, for instance, um, you know, I, I love using straight carbon steels. Like 1084 and 1095 are straight carbon steels that I use the most. I have had a couple of others that are higher in carbon content that I really like that I'm going to get my hands on also. Uh, but I, I love them. They're, 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 they're easy to heat treat. Um, they, they take good high hardness. They finish out really beautifully. And um, they're very easy to sharpen. And they've got pretty good toughness for what they are. Uh, this carbon steel knife is probably going to be better than any carbon steel knife uh, or any just general knife coming out of a blister pack in, in any grocery store. And yes, that's reflected in the price, but it's also reflected in the material and the design choices. Um, but, you know, what I could do metallurgically with this carbon steel is beyond what most factories can do with, with their, uh, with the steel that, you know, that, that they have an opportunity to use. So my, my preferences are, are, um, 
a certain set of simple carbon seals uh, because I, I just think they're beautiful knives, uh, but also because they're fairly tough and because they're really easy to sharpen. Uh, so some, say someone says, okay, that's great, but I don't like the fact that, um, that it changes color. Uh, you know, I want it to be stain resistant. Uh, well, okay, so there's a compromise there. So there's a stain resistant steel that maintains its ability to be fairly tough and also easy to sharpen, but will resist staining, and that's called AEBL. Uh, so that's my preferred stain resistant steel. Uh, it, it, it's a really well made steel that um, it, it can rust. Um, if somebody is like, look, I want it to go to zero rust, okay, well, there's another steel that we can choose. But again, there's a compromise that we're going to have to make in the design, the materials of the process in order to deal with that and in the end user's uh, knife overall. Uh, I also have uh, some O1 tool steel that's a pretty cool steel. There's all these simple steels that are easy for people to care for. They're easy for them to, to keep sharp if they want to sharpen them on their own. They're pretty tough, so they're not, you're not likely to, to knock a giant chip out of the edge of it. Uh, you know, just cutting through a, a watermelon or whatever. Um, there are a lot of other steels out there that I've worked with that are also great uh, for different reasons. Um, and, and they may be superior in some places to some of the steels that I use. Uh, but also these, these are good to forge. I forge everything by hand. I don't have a, a power hammer or a, or a hydraulic press right now. I don't have a rolling mill. I have to, I have to forge everything, you know, with a hammer. Uh, so I choose steels that that hammer nicely under pressure uh, and and you know and and heat. So um, so yeah, I, I I really like simple carbon steels that, um, like 1095, 1084, um, uh, 26C3, 125. Uh, these are all really good steels. Um, and then I like AEBL for stain resistant. Uh, there is a, a, a powdered metallurgy steel that I'm going to get here pretty soon that's stainless that is a little bit harder to sharpen, uh, but adds some toughness and is slightly more stainless for some harder use knives. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how I choose them. I, again, I choose them mostly based around uh, that, that intended function and what compromises uh, I, I think are important ones to make. Uh, so, you know, for instance, um, again, I guess to, 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 to put a finer point on what that compromise means, uh, I could make uh, this knife out of a tool seal that will mean that this edge will stay sharp for like six or eight months and you can hack through like elk antler. Ah, crap. Can you guys still hear me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's doing Ah, it's connecting again. Oh, are we back? Amen. Hey, okay. Uh, so I could do that. I mean, I can make it out of a, a, a steel that, um, that, that feels more indestructible. But as a user, you'll probably never be able to sharpen that knife. And that kind of bothers me. I want people to be able to care for their own knives. Um, so I choose not to use that steel. Um, if someone comes along and says, hey, I really need it to be this way, I'll tell them, yeah, that's cool. We'll make it. We'll make it. Uh, but know this, you know, it's going to be hard for you to maintain your own edge. And uh, you may have to ship it back to me to sharpen it for you. Um, if you know, whenever it does go. Uh, otherwise, if you're willing to maintain your own edge, this is a simple steel. It's pretty tough. Takes a screamy sharp edge, and, you know, and off you go. So, 
So their compromise is kind of built all over this thing uh, that have settled me on a number of tool steels and straight carbon steels and a, and a stain resistant steel that I, that I really like, that I find uh, my customers have all been really happy with. Yeah, and it's, I don't think anyone listening should worry about how much thought and care goes into making your knives because it's, it, it's, it's fun and obvious to hear how much thought really does go into each knife specifically. Like, what, what is the goal? Why do you need this knife? And, and we will get there for you. Like, it's very, very interesting how much actually goes into making that one knife. Um, and, and it's fun to hear your passion. Like, it's very blatant how much you love to do that process. And I'm interested um, without or throughout your whole, you know, from sharpening to, to creating a knife, anything that you learned in your past job that you noticed has carried over into what you do now. I know you spent, you know, 10 years doing what you did prior and, and wasn't crazy about it, but uh, was there anything that you learned skill-wise there, whether it was, you know, a, a research thing, a, a focus thing that really carried over into how you create your knives now? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot. Um, number one, um, I, I one of the things that I really like about uh, this particular artisan craft is that there's a lot of material science that I can kind of bury myself into, and uh, the skills that I you know that I picked up just researching, just just what does research look like? Um, because I think what a lot a lot of people do like a lot of new knife makers kind of go to the forums and they just look for someone to tell them what they should do so that they, um, they kind of lose out on some of those decision-making points. And that's okay. When you first start out, you, again, you don't know what those compromises are. You don't know why you're making those decisions. Um, and so for me, that was one of the things that really jumped out initially. It was like, wow, there are a lot of little things that are important here. And if I don't know what they are, then I am making an uneducated decision. I am just going off of what someone else is telling me I should do, which is only which is okay for only so long. At some point, you have to be able to you have to be able to do this yourself, right? You, you got to take your training wheels off and go. Well, why am I doing this? Why would I design it this way? And I still see makers. I mean, I'm not gonna disparage anyone's work, but I still see makers who are making a lot of mistakes because they're not thinking through that. They're not designing it. Uh, the way that, that, that really they should if they want a good tool. They may not be choosing the right process because they don't know what steel, you know, it's a mystery steel or whatever, so they don't actually know what they're, they're, they're getting an okay result, but they don't know exactly what they're getting from this. So for me, one of the big things was just the ability to research and understand data. The ability to look at a graph with a series of data points on it and understand how is this going to affect my end product? How does this, you know, what's, it, what's the deviation here? Why does that deviation matter when if they've done a thousand tests, you know, if, if, if something's got really wide data versus a really narrow data point, how to trust one source of data over another. So the, just the, the ability to research and, uh, and, and kind of um, digest that research material is a, is a core component for me. Again, for other people, maybe it's not so much, but for me it is. Uh, that way I know why I'm choosing the things that I'm choosing. I know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And, and, and other people may disagree with that. That's okay. They may say, well, I wouldn't do it that way for this reason. Cool. But I do it this way for this reason. So research was a big one. 
Um, another one really was developing uh, customer communication skills. Everyone has an ability to communicate in, you know, kind of an informal way um, that, you know, that, that, that can generate a level of comfort. But I think learning how to, um, in some respects, once you've gone through the process enough, there's actually a predictive value to certain kinds of conversations where nine times out of 10, these series of questions is really pointing in this direction, not in the direction they think they're pointing in. It's really pointing in this direction. It's not to make assumptions, but it's to understand there's some predictive value and really understanding what customers are asking. And do they understand what they are asking, right? If someone comes to me and says, hey, make me this nice with this deal. Um, one of my first questions is, um, why did you choose that deal? If they don't have a, 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 an extremely specific answer for why they chose that deal, maybe we have a conversation about what, what are they actually looking for? Mm -hmm. Someone probably just told you to look for this deal, or someone probably just told you that this is the design element you want. Do you know why you want that? Because if you don't, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. Let's, let's figure out what you're really looking for because we, together without, uh, without the influence of whatever that thing was, maybe we'll come to a different solution. And maybe we won't, that's okay. If, we, if, if what you're asking for is exactly what you want and it's the only thing you want, that's fine. Um, but ha having that ability to, you know, some predictive, understanding of what people are really asking like like the ability to kind of read between the lines in conversation and and then follow that up with lots and lots of questions uh not to overwhelm people but to make sure that you're getting really what they're looking for uh this is an investment after all and if i'm going to put in the time and they're going to put in the money let's make sure that we get really what they're looking for um, and there's different ways to get that information. Even if someone's not explicit and they're just like, dude, make it awesome. <laughs> you know, I may, have an, I may have an idea about what that means to them uh, if we have a little bit more conversation, right? Dude, make it awesome, but like, I don't like the color red is a different kind of conversation than just, dude, make it awesome, right? You don't want to land on red if that's not what they're looking for and they just didn't have the wherewithal to tell you that. Um, because they didn't know that it might end up in there, right? So, uh, yeah, research and then uh, customer communication ended up being two really big ones. Uh, another one, which may seem obvious to some people uh, and may seem completely uh, out of the blue to others, is when you work on your own, um, you are the only problem solver that there really is in your shop. You can ask all kinds of people questions, you can talk to all kinds of, but you're the only one that took those steps. So one of the things that I used to do um, in the lab when I was in charge of these instrument clusters was uh, if they went down, instead of calling a technician who would be in tomorrow and like do diagnose, I, I went out to that manufacturer's training and they trained me as if I was going to be a technician. And I learned how to basically troubleshoot at all of those little uh, points of intersection, you might call them. Uh, to me, most of those points of intersection are decision-making points, right? So all those little points of intersection where the, the instrument is doing one thing or another is a place where you can look for a problem. Uh, and you can trace a thread from the different directions it came from 
into the output that was the issue, and you've got to trace it back into, until you find that kind of intersection point where the issue happened. Um, and then I would troubleshoot those and get them back up and running oftentimes faster than the technicians could come out and do it. Um, and so there's a huge, just, just, just learning the ability to problem solve. I think in a lot of corporate environments, it's really easy for people to ignore, to silo themselves, kind of ignore upstream, ignore downstream. And if there's a problem in front of you that you didn't physically make, you're just like, not my problem. Right? Someone upstream needs to fix that. Someone downstream needs to fix that. That's not my issue. Well, I don't, I don't have that luxury. Literally anything that goes wrong could probably is something I did wrong, but it could be another problem. It could be that my kiln wasn't fully calibrated correctly. It could be that there was, some, there was an issue with that batch of steel. and I need to do a little bit of research and figure out if I should continue using this batch of steel or if there's like a problem um, and how do, I, how, how do I resolve that problem. It's all on me. There's no one else to, to do that. So just learning how to problem solve um, in, in an environment where you're constantly having to kind of look up and downstream, find those intersections, and uh, and just kind of dig into whatever the issue is was was is has been hugely important in my ability to overcome obstacles, you know, address issues, and move forward kind of smoothly and efficiently, and um, and just keep myself moving. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, perspective too. Of you know, you are the only one who can really do it. And I think Tim and I can both relate to that because before we started a podcast, we didn't know anything about audio equipment. Like we, we didn't know our head from our ass yeah. you know, and, and you know, you can read and study, yeah. but eventually it's, it's like, okay, let's, we just got to order the gear that we think we need. We'll send it back if we don't and, and just kind of dive right in. So I really like that perspective of, you know, you are the only problem solver. And it's like, I asked for this. So now it's time to, to kind of treat it. Yeah. Better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And I, I was the same way. I didn't know, I didn't know any of this information, but I knew how to get information. I knew how to find it and I knew how to internalize it and I knew how to apply it. And yes, I was going to make mistakes. And yes, there are going to be things that I, you know, it's like, well, my information said this, but my feeling says this, or my gut tells me this, or, or my, my impulse is to do this. And sometimes that was right. And sometimes that was wrong. And that's just part of learning. That's a learning process. But you, I mean, you right, ignorance is exactly what it is. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, but the ability to find that information and the willingness to find that information and then continue to troubleshoot and continue to grow with that information in hand is, I think, the way forward. It's the right way forward. Because I think, I think in some instances, a lot of times also because of the, just because of the existence of the internet, you can like, you can basically just sort of piggyback on a lot of those elements of someone else. Somebody else will be like, hey, man, if you want to make a chopping knife, this is the steel. Here's your heat treatment. Here's your design. Like, just go after it. So, you, you, you know, you don't have to think about any of that. Someone is, is I, mean, I mean, hell, you can go to like a woodworking store and they'll give you a finished knife, essentially, where all you got to do is put the handles on it. Hmm. Right? So, you, you, I mean, you can... You can follow someone else's recipe. You can do that and, and maybe be successful with that where you're just like, I don't actually know why I make it like this. That doesn't really matter because the people who came before me already established that this is the way to do it. So 
you know, I can kind of follow that path and make little deviations for myself. You could do that and you could be successful with that. But I found personally that I, this is kind of something I need to dive into so that when someone asks a question, I'm not like, ugh, why do I make that decision? You know, why do I choose that material? Why did I buy that thing? Like, I, I don't actually know because the internet told me to. I don't know. That's, <laughs> right. not the, that's not the answer I want. You know, I want to know why I chose that. And if I'm going to make a change, I want to know why I'm going to make that change too. I want to know why maybe, maybe there's a better op option now that I didn't consider before because I didn't have the information um, or I didn't have the experience to apply that information, whatever that is. There's a lot of growth into it. You know, you can't just know it and not do it. And you can't, I can't just do it with absolutely not knowing any of it. Like, I, can't, I can't just like mindlessly follow it and be like, uh, perfect. You know, that's not how my brain works. But, you know. And I'm interested in terms of, you know, how, how you approach uh, the knife making and very purpose driven. What was the business side of things? How did that look when you first started? Like, okay, I'm going to make my own, have my own business. Where, where, where did you start? Did you have mentorship or guidance there too? Did you kind of just dive right in and, you know, just, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to mess a few things up. I'm going to learn here and there. What did that look like on the business end of things uh, when you kind of first started out? Okay, so I basically just dove right in um, because what I had oh, looks like it's doing the thing again. Oh, nuts. Yeah, it's coming back, I think. Or I, can, I can hear you guys. Audio's there, but ah, yeah. okay. There we go. Awesome. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I was definitely kind of a uh, a dive right in situation uh, because really in my situation, um, you know, I, I didn't have a business background or anything, so I wasn't downplaying how difficult it could be to start the business. But you, you, you can't start an artisan business without having the, the skills required to be an artisan, right? I think that's actually one of those tricky things is that you see that other people are. You know, knife makers, and you're just like, oh, I want to make knives. That looks awesome. Um, it took me months, months, and months. I mean, honestly, like a couple of years to get to the point where this could be a business. Um, and all the while, the focus was on building up the skills required to actually do this thing and make something worth buying. So, um, so that's kind of first thing. Let's just dive into the skills. Really, if I if I want to sum it up. The, the, the initial key was to invest in myself, invest in the skills that I needed in order to even think about doing this thing. Um, and, and if anyone was to ask, where do I start? That's where you start. Invest in yourself, right? Go take a class, find a mentor. I didn't have one, but I, w I would absolutely recommend someone find one if you can. Take classes, right? Be, be willing to spend money to gain the skills you need or be willing to mess up a lot and not have a business for a while while you mess up. But definitely don't say, ah, oh, it'll be fine. Ah, oh, screw a bunch of shit up. But it's a business for sure. That's not how you want to do this. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't personally think, especially not if you've got skills that you need to develop because otherwise what you're going to end up doing is putting a whole bunch of, of shit out there with your name on it. 
sure. while you're trying to like growing pain your way through it. Growing pain it while it's still just a hobby, while it's still just fun, while you're still just interested in it, or, you know, get a mentor, take some classes, invest in yourself that direction where you can have someone who can say, yeah, no, don't do that. Yes, yes, do this. You know, follow this path. So, so my thing was just to dive into the skills first, and then I'll figure out the business kind of once I'm comfortable with the skills. And again, the sharpening was the initial skill. That was the one that it was like, okay, I can actually, this is really simple uh, as far as marketing this. It's, it's, it's really simple. You know, you bring me dull knives, I sharpen them. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, off we go. But the knife making, it was like, I still need to work on this, on this skill set before I'm like, hey, I'm a knife maker. I, I'm a bladesmith. I wasn't. I knew I wasn't. So that was going to come later. Um, you know, the other thing was, I, you know, I don't think you have to have someone who does exactly what you do as a mentor if you're going to have one, but it certainly helps if they're at least in the same kind of sphere as you. So, um, you know, again, one of those things, like if someone's uh, dream is to start some kind of multimedia company, you know, an artist is probably not going to be the person to help guide you through understanding that that kind of business process. Uh, likewise, uh, a newspaper editor probably isn't the right person to tell you how to start an artisan process. So find other people who are like-minded, other, you know, other audio video people who want to do that, other carpenters or other artisans or other, whatever it is that you think you want to get into, find someone who's at least similar. You can pick their brain, you know, see what they know about it. Um, but ultimately, for me, ultimately it came down to uh, this is a skill set I don't have, and there will be no business if I can't nail down this skill set. And that is, um, you know, I have people come to me all the time who are like, dude, this is awesome. I want to be a knife maker. Teach me how to be a knife maker. Um, and so often I'll tell them, okay, man, here's, here's where we're going to go. Here's where we're going to get this information. You know, I suggest you try, you take a couple, a couple of these classes. And sometimes they're like, cool. And sometimes they're like, oh, man, I don't know. I don't think I really, I don't think I can do that. Okay, well, then you're not ready yet. Um, you know, be, be willing to invest in yourself and be ready to do that. Because if you're not ready to do those things, there's no business. I mean, I, I, we all have that dream of making it a business, but it doesn't exist until you have, you know, a core set of things that you can offer people, right? Like a core set of either services or skills or, or even if it's entertainment, ultimately what you guys do is, 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 is valuable. Storytelling is so important. So developing the ability to tell a story and to listen and to, you know, uh, uh, um, to develop a rapport, that was a skill set you guys probably had to develop. You know, do those things. Develop that kind of stuff before you're like, boom, I'm this now. I make this, you know, I have this business. So that, 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 that's kind of it. It was, it was I, I kind of had to dive in, but, but in a large part because I knew I had to develop that skill set for my own self, where, where, where I knew I could make something reasonable, something good, something worth having before I could say, hey, I'm in business now, you know, come, come get it. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. You know, ha having the, the the background of the knowledge, the, the skill uh, to perform. You know, you got to be able to produce the result, and and I think that's important. To where it's like people can jump in and uh, like you yeah. 
know, have their struggle pains through it, but it gets you so far for so long. Um, so, so that's, that's yeah. the kind of the, the idea of, okay, I need to hone this first and then can do that. And, and Tim and I, we talked to a lot of uh, different entrepreneurs and you, know, you have your growing pains, you have the nitty gritty work that like not a lot of people see, you know, people because of social media, yeah. you have Lamborghinis and the private jets, right? Um, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm interested, what are some things that, that you've had as an entrepreneur where, you know, oh, I need to do this. I don't love this part, but it has to get done. Anything that sticks out where, you know, whether something didn't go exactly according to plan, but something as an entrepreneur that you've had to kind of navigate yourself through where people don't always see that part of the process. Is there anything that really jumps out? Like, this is a thing. And, you know, people don't see this. They see the, the beautiful finished uh, knife that I can make, but they don't see X, Y, Z. I know we've gone into, you know, finding the right materials and everything, but anything that really is like entrepreneurial, like, man, they don't understand this. Yeah. Um, man, I, I think there's a lot to, um, there's a lot that I, I end up inviting a lot of customers out to my shop. Um, it's just my home garage, humble, full of kids, bikes. It's kind of messy uh, because I got a ton of stuff packed into a small space. Uh, but a lot of people come out here specifically so that they can kind of see parts of that process and have me explain it with all those things in hand so that they understand that um, there's a significant amount of work that goes into this um, that that is, you know, again, it is just me standing here in the shop doing all these little details to get this thing right. And so then, you know, when they, when they want to pick out materials, okay, here's the process for how, how I process those materials. Um, there, there are lots of little things all over the place that are, again, decision points where you're going you're gonna to have to compromise something. Um, or you're going you're gonna to have to make a decision to go one direction or another. And um, in showing people some of those decision points is really enlightening for them to say, oh, man, wow, I never thought about that. I, I never thought that, that this much went into X, Y, and Z or that you had to think so um, uh, that you, know, you had to put that much depth of thought into uh, A, B, and C or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, to me, it, a lot of it ends up just being kind of sharing all of those little decision-making points. The other thing, again, is it's just me. So, like, I have, I have, I'm still having to learn how to, like, deal with my website. Uh, I, you know, I've never built a website before. Like, so every time I go in there, I'm like, oh, man, there's another thing I just learned how to do on my website that has not been there for the last three years. That's lovely, you know? Uh, banking is a weird, just a weird thing. That dealing, you know, different banks dealing with each other and then each individual, like, app that wants to connect with your bank and then how they all... You know, and then what happens if your information gets going? Like, all that stuff is crazy. That you, just, you just don't think about how much of your time ends up going into building a website and, and posting constantly on social media just to try and drive engagement. And, and the, you know, I mean, some people it comes to naturally. I guess some people that's what they do. That's like, that's their job. So it's different if that's all you're doing. But if it's just a small part of what you're doing, then you gotta, you gotta carve out time to like understand what um, you know the analytics behind what you're doing and what what's engaging people and what isn't engaging people and 
you know, marketing. I don't have a marketing team. I just have whatever's up in here, and I gotta yeah. <laughs> come up with, you know. So I, it's, it, I, I, I know it's really vague and just all encompassing, but I think that's kind of it. Like, mm. if you don't, if you don't have some en- corporate entity behind you creating this for you, then you gotta roll up your sleeves because you're gonna be creating all of it yourself. It's it's you. It's all on you to do this well. Uh, and sometimes it's luck, man. Sometimes it's totally you're just lucky that you got there at the right place at the right time. And and, and, and we can't argue that. And I think honestly, it's a disservice to, to argue that it's all hard work, that it's all just talent or whatever it is. Because a lot of times it's not. You know, the difference between a guy who has a handful of files and a torch and no money and a guy who has, you know, a family who has a machine shop with rolling mills and power hammers and hydraulic presses and he has a mentor who knows all these things, those two guys are not going to have the same trajectory, no matter how much they want it, no matter how much guy A who has a handful of dirty old files and a torch wants it, he's at a disadvantage and so, you know, there's luck that plays into that. Um, but in the end, everyone has to work hard to build a business. Uh, and you're going to end up doing a lot of things that you don't think about. A lot of things that you don't think about, you know, uh, uh, you know, fixing electronics in some machine that breaks down or, um, or reshaping a tool in order to fit a purpose that you didn't really know you needed until suddenly you needed it. And then you're like, Oh man, like, how do I do this? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do I make a tool to do this thing when there's no tool to do that? You know, so I end up doing that stuff all the time, man. I'm, I'm constantly making new tools for myself, learning how to do something new that, I, you know, something breaks that I don't know how to fix. I guess I got to figure out how to fix it. There's nobody else around here to do it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's just, just that. Just be ready to, to kind of take on everything. Give yourself the time to, to learn it, to, to, make, to make mistakes. You know, celebrate your successes, certainly. Um, but entrepreneurial uh, exploits are, there's way more uh, just craziness kind of going on in the background than, uh, than that finished product in the end. You know, this, this in the end takes weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks worth of work everywhere from logistics of ordering the materials to the actual skills of shaping the materials to, you know, making sure that I have other materials on hand to deal with it, that I've got the right quenchant in there, that my, you know, that my, my kilns are working properly, uh, that, um, you know, my stabilized, uh, handle material stabilized properly, just all, you know, that it goes up on the website, that, uh, you know, uh, pricing, all, all that stuff, emails, marketing, all that stuff. It's, it's all just wrapped up in there because there's nobody else to do it, you know? But again, I, I really, I really think what's the most enlightening to people is uh, shining a light, illuminating those, all those little decision points. Not to, not to complain to them or anything like that. It's just to say, hey, there's a lot. There is a lot. Uh, and if you can illuminate them and illustrate that you think your way through them, that like I'm putting thought into this, it, I think it means a lot to, to customers. I think it means a lot to people that um that it matters so much to you that you, you know that that yeah. you're putting this much thought into it that you're willing to put this effort and this time and this thought into all of this i think that matters 
hundred percent. And I like how you invite people to your shop. Like it, yeah. it's, it's your garage, you know, you said there's bikes in there. It's a little messy sometimes, you know, and it's like, that's real. Like that is super real where it's not, you know, all shiny brand new, like, like a manufacturing plant or something. So I really like that, that people, yeah. mm, what goes into it. So they get an idea of, Oh wow. Like it's more than just putting a handle on a piece of steel. You know, there's yeah. a lot of stuff. So I really like that aspect of, of how you, you have people come see you. I think that's really cool. And I'm sure yeah, customers, but, customers appreciate that transparency too. Like that's what, that's what customers want. They just, they want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, a lot of this experiment ultimately, if you want to call it that has driven, uh, it has kind of changed my thought process as a consumer. I think more about why am I buying this? And like, is there someone better that I could buy this from? that has a, a bigger impact maybe on my community or just su can support a business that I really care about. Like how do I make sure that I spend, I put my effort and my money, you know, that I worked so hard for into something that's going to have a positive impact beyond just making some billionaire or more billions of dollars or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so, sorry, go ahead, Tim. I, I only have a couple more questions, um, but one yeah. thing I want to ask before my final question, um, do you, out of all the knives you create, do you, you have like a, do you personally, like what's your favorite personal use of the knife? Um, any type of knife that you like personally, or just kind of want to uncover like your personal Yeah, so, um, <laughs> As a general category, I, I find kitchen knives to be what I, uh, what I enjoy using the most, specifically because I can use them all the time. I get to go camping a couple of times a year, and I always love having a good camp knife with me, but even then, you're only using it for a very select few tasks a couple times a year. You know, going fishing with my dad, and we get to break down a big redfish or whatever. Yeah, that's super awesome, but it's not something I get to do. But, like, I get to use you know, a kitchen knife every single day, multiple times a day. I, I, I got kids. I do most of the cooking for my family. So a, a kitchen knife is the one knife that I, I always know how good it is because I use it all the time. Um, and, and that really just, that, that's ultimately why I make so many kitchen knives. Uh, because almost everyone sees that I make a lot of kitchen knives and you know, hopefully if they've tried one, had a chance to try one, or, or at least just believe that they're as good as they look, um, it seems like a no-brainer. I don't ultimately have very many people who order something that isn't a, a kitchen knife. Um, and again, it's just, it's, it's what I use. I use them day in, day out, seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year. I bring my, knife, my kitchen knives with me when I go, like, cook at friends' houses, or family's houses. Yeah, I bring my my stones so I can sharpen their knives. But I bring my knives too because I want to make sure that, uh, although by now most of my family has one of my knives anyway, so I just end up cooking with their, you know, prepping with their knives that, that I made for them. Uh, but still, yeah, that's, I mean, for sure, kitchen knives because you can use them every day. And ultimately, you know, I mean, there, there's lots of cool knives out there. If you're like a knife gal or a knife guy or whatever, there's tons of cool knives out there, but... Um, but, but for most of us, like you, you just can't deny the fact that a kitchen knife is the most useful knife that you're going to have 
ultimately. I mean, I, I, I make a, made much of a little pocket knife, just a little, you know, three fingers to fit on it. This is a tiny little blade. I carry it everywhere I go. I love it. I still don't use it as much as I use a kitchen knife, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Still don't use it as much. It's, every day I'm in here cutting boxes and, you know, packing up stuff. It's still, I use the kitchen knife more than anything else. And that's why I make most, mostly that. Um, I think they're great. And they have such an, an elegant um, flow to the aesthetic of a kitchen knife. I think there's so much, again, just so much just kind of elegance you know, that, that kind of meanders through all the different uh, um, curves and, uh, yeah, wow. you know, a nice taper to it. Like, the, there's just so much about a kitchen knife um, that I think is really, is really, really pretty and just uh, a joy to use. Right. Um, so, s- say someone, you know, because I, I love to cook, like, I'm always in the kitchen. Uh, say someone yeah. doesn't know anything about about knives and not sure where to start. Uh, yeah. What kind of knife that, that you make would you recommend? You know, I was, I was kind of looking through some of your knives. Um, what would you advise someone start with? You know, like, you know, do you have a, a basic chef's knife or, or what would you advise yeah. is the best kind of starting point? Because I know you have some like real specialty ones. Um, so if someone's like, hey, I don't know shit about knives. I love to cook. Yeah. Uh, you know, asking for a friend, of course, um, where would they yeah. start? What do you advise as the best starting point um, with, you know, having a good knife in the kitchen? Okay. So uh, how I always start this conversation is when you, uh, when you go to use a kitchen knife, what is currently the knife that you reach for the most? And why do you reach for that knife the most? Mm. Uh, ultimately, the majority of people have a knife that they reach for more than any other knife. If you ask my grandmother, it's a paring knife. Why? Because she grew up using paring knife all the time. So if she's going to invest in a knife, a paring knife is going to be the best investment she can make because that's the one she's going to reach for anyway. So, you know, convincing her to buy an 11 inch chef knife, is just silly. She's not going to use it. She's always going to grab a paring <laughs> knife. So may as well just get the one that you want. Uh, my, my wife is also not going to use an 11 inch chef knife unless she's got to cut like a watermelon. She almost always is going to go with a petty. She just really likes the, a, you know, a small, you know, uh, you know, relatively short, small heel, thin blade, lightweight, you know, super sharp. Maybe, maybe the petty is exactly what you need. Um, my mom is more likely to pick something like this, like a, a petite chef, so like a six-inch Santoku, right? So what do, you, what do you reach for right now, and why do you reach for that the most? If your answer is like, oh, well, I just grabbed this like six-inch, you know, whatever knife because it's the only sharp knife in my kitchen, okay, well, then we can tweak that conversation to what would you like to reach for every time? What would your preference be? But that's it, man. If, if you're going to buy one knife, buy the one you're going to use the most. If, if you're very first knife, if you're just like, man, I just really want a boning knife. And it's like, well, how often do you bone out chickens? And you're like, never. <laughs> All right, I'll make it. I'll, I'll, I'll make it for you. And I hope you use it. But maybe, maybe go with the one you're going to use the most. This is kind of funny. Uh, a couple of years back, um, I made four matching fillet knives for a lady to give to her four, uh, her husband and her three sons. Uh, for Christmas and um, 
they, I, I don't know, they celebrated early or something. And then by Christmas day, they had like a big, well, between her husband and all three of her sons, they brought all of their knives to help make Christmas dinner. And those knives were the only knives anyone used for all of the prep that they did for Christmas dinner. Wow. Uh, every hand they cut, every, <laughs> every onion, every, everything. It was the best knife in the house. And so they used four filet knives to feed like 20 people because you'll see the, there wasn't anything else as sharp as, you know, so ultimately you're going to use the best knife you have, mm -hmm. right? You're going to use it for everything that you yeah. can figure to use it for because it's the best knife you have. So right. start with the knife that is going to do the most for you. The one that you're going to want to reach for that you're going to hold this thing and just be like, yeah, hell yeah. Like this is it. This feels good. So whether that's a, you know, an eight inch Quito or an 11 inch chef, you know, or a petty or a paring knife, if it's a kitchen knife, well, you know, so be it. Pick the one that's, that's the most. Now, if someone's like, hey, I want to invest in several knives. Okay, that's fine. Then we start with uh, probably something like an eight inch chef knife. That's, that's most people are comfortable with somewhere between a seven and a half and eight, eight and a half inch chef knife. And then a paring knife because the two, between the two of those things, you can do 95, 98% of what most people do for food prep. And then from there, you start talking about things like a petty knife or a, a boning knife or a, you know, a, a Santoku or something like that as kind of as like your wild card knife or whatever. But the vast majority of people can do almost everything in the kitchen with a paring knife and a chef knife. Um, but you know, it's up to each, each person's preference. You, you, you ultimately, you're going to, you're going to reach for the knife that's the best knife in your kitchen, and you're going to use that for everything you can think to use it for. Makes sense. So, yeah, so get the one that, that you want to use the most. All right. Good deal. Excellent advice. Yeah. Tim, you got a – sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, do you have any other questions for, uh, for Eric before I ask the final I, one? I think that was it, man. I think we've kind of covered a lot. Yeah, I think I'm good, dude. Okay. Uh, Eric, is there anything else you want to leave uh, the listeners with before I ask uh, my final question? Well, first off, I really just want to thank you guys for having me. This has been a really cool experience. Um, you know, it's always um, everyone likes to have the chance to tell their story. Um, and it's, it's not an ego thing. It's just uh, I, most of the time when I go to an event um, and I stand in front of people with my wares, the vast, vast majority of people here in Indianapolis still have not heard of me. They still, they still don't know who I am. They don't know what I do. They don't know what ash blades means. They, not all of this just means nothing to them. Um, and so, you know, really the big thing is, um, uh, you know, just, just look for people like me in your community uh, to, to help put your money into, whether that's small farmers or artisans or artists or whatever. Um, you know, I'm five years into this and, and still most of the people I come across have no idea that that someone even does this at all. They have no idea that anyone in our community does this. And so it's constant, you know, it's kind of cycle of education and re-education and things like that. So, you know, just, um, just think about, about that kind of stuff. Look, look for people like me in, in, in your community. When you think about 
something that would make your life better. You go to buy a gift for someone, uh, you know, look, look for somebody local, look, not just uh, uh, something geographically close to you, but look for a, a business or a company or a person who, who really is invested in their community, trying to do good things, trying to make awesome things. Um, you know, trying to make our lives better and, 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 and put your money there. So whether that's, you know, me or not, I would, that, that's not it, but just, just that mentality, just, just look for where you can do, have the most impact on, on, on the community that you live in and, and, and support those people, you know, because people like me, that's what we do too. We support the people around us. I support artists and artisans and farmers and markets and restaurants. And, you know, I put this money Trust me, the you know the, the the roads are not paved in gold as an as an artisan uh, business maker. The the margins are not are not massive. Uh, I you know it, 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 yes they're expensive, um, but they're extremely expensive to make, and they're you know it t- takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of you know everything. So just look for people like like me, uh, and, and and even if you can't spend your money. Things like what you guys are doing are, is super helpful. So thank you again for that. You know, everybody wants their story to be heard so that people just know that we exist. Um, every time somebody, you know, every time we get the chance to talk about something like this, it's, it's an opportunity for a new person to hear, oh, this is a thing that I didn't know exists. I, I knew of a couple of podcasts in India, and I didn't know about your guys until you contacted me. And then I was like, wow. This is awesome. You know, I got a new podcast to listen to. This is great. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, in a lot of, I guess, in a lot of ways, we're kind of in the same boat there, right? Where we're trying to, trying to try to grow our audience and try and get people engaged. And, and, and really, you just ask that people take a minute and engage. Take a, yeah. take a minute and, you know, invest in, in, in the people in your community. Yeah, that's 100%. great. I'm, I'm really glad we found you. I'm glad we were able to connect and yeah, businesses like yours and people like you pouring passion into what they do and doing things for the right reasons. Like more and more people need to know about businesses like yours. And I'm, I'm glad we were able to get on. Um, and I guess the final question that I want to ask is we, we, the same question we asked all our guests. The final question is uh, kind of a legacy question. Uh, when it's all said and done, how do you, Eric, want to be remembered? Uh, when you're gone from Earth, what what do you want people to think of when they think of you? Um, Deep one, I know. I, uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I, I mean, I think my initial thing is really just I'm, I, I want to be a good a good father and a good husband, a good a good brother, a good son. I want to be a good human being. That that's really uh, you know the initial kind of goal there is if people say hey, he was a good dude. That's cool. I'll take that. Uh, but as far as what I'm doing professionally, um, really what I want to do is try and reconnect people with, again, they're, they're not just the community, but with, um, with what's kind of important in the world around us. Like, I have a couple of knives from my grandparents, and they're not in great shape, but they mean the world to me because they tell the story of our family in, 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 in their blades and, you know, or, or whatever it is, whether it's a knife or a, a, a hat or, you know, an heirloom. There, an heirloom is a thing for a reason. Uh, 
because it tells the story of, of your family and of your community and like what this thing meant to you. And I'm trying to make things that do the same thing for other people to help them establish new memories and new connections into a legacy that they can carry on down their family name. Like there's absolutely no reason if someone takes care of this knife that it won't last beyond my life, that this isn't a multi-generational thing that someone's like kids and grandkids or nieces and nephews will see them use in their kitchen and it'll form memories that they love and that they cherish and that they want to be a part of <clears throat> and kind of just reconnect with, you know, whether it's your family or your roots or your community or, you know, I have, um, this is a shameless plug for my friend, uh, Indy Urban Hardwood. I get wood from them that comes down from, you know, trees that come down in storms uh, in, in our communities. They would otherwise just get fed into a wood chipper or burned or whatever that is. And so instead, you know, we can take pieces of our community, 250-year-old trees, and make something beautiful that can last, uh, you know, a generation or more. Um, and so I guess that's kind of what I'm hoping is that, that I can, I can be a part of this push against the, the kind of the idea of consuming cheap and often, and instead develop this legacy that like we buy things that mean something. If you have to buy something at all, or we make things that mean something, and then we pass those things down to other people so that they mean something to them too. So that there's this kind of connection that sometimes this tool can be a connection, you know, kind of a thread that meanders through a life uh, or several lives or a generation of a family or two or three generations or whatever that is. Um, and kind of like reconnects us to the important things that are around us. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing. And it just happened to be that knives is the way that I wanted to do that. That's awesome. I love that. Bring it people closer together. I love it. It's really awesome. Eric, thank you so much again, man. We know, uh, you know, you're a family man, you're a businessman. We really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us. And it was a lot of fun just getting to know you, getting to know your business and, and that, you know, that you exist. So it was, it was really cool. We actually heard about you. Uh, we interviewed uh, Ben Canary from Herculean. And he praised your yeah. knives. And so we we're like, Oh, that sounds super awesome. And so it just, it's fun how it all kind of comes full circle. And, and I know where I'm going for, for my nice knife, you know, it's, it's time to get a good knife. So we appreciate you, man. Yeah. Thanks guys. I really appreciate you having me on. This has been really fun. It's been great to, to, to talk to you guys, to get to know you guys. And, um, and I look forward to hearing more from you guys. And maybe when this is all over, we can get together and get a beer or something. Or, or you guys come out to the shop. Oh, yeah. totally down. Yeah, we'll, we'll bring the beers to you, man. Yeah. Sounds great. I'm down with that. I'm down with that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Eric. You have a good day, man. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, dude. You guys, too. All right. All right. All right. Sounds good. Bye. Bye.